Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for joining us on The Great Exchange, a podcast dedicated to looking at the world through gospel glasses. My name is Maddie, and I am super excited to be joined by a wonderful special guest for this episode of the podcast. And we are being joined once again by Dr. Sean Rittenauer of Grove City College. Dr. Rittenauer has been on the program before. We've been excited to talk to him. He laid out for us in the first time that we were with him a Christian view of economics. Then we also talked with him about socialism and why it is evil and unbiblical. And Today, we're going to have him on the program to talk to us about the economic analysis of unionism. Are unions moral? Do they violate fundamental principles of private property and free enterprise? What about public sector unions? Are they different than private sector unions inherently? So we're going to look at some of the economic functions of unions, what they're designed to do, what the purpose is, and what they end up leading to. And in light of that, then we're going to do an analysis of whether or not they are moral or not. And we're doing this in light of the recent strike that the nurses union in Manitoba is going on. They... I know have been in contract disputes before COVID, but they're going on this strike. They they decided they voted 98% in favor of going on the strike while we were in lockdown, full lockdown as a province. And I really thought it was appropriate for us to have a discussion on whether or not this idea is legitimate and whether or not some of the rhetoric that has come from the unions is actually appropriate and true. So that's why I thought I'd get Dr. Rittenauer on the program to discuss these issues. Dr. Rittenauer has written the book Foundations of Economic a, Economics, A Christian View. Um, it's, it's a great book. It has an entire chapter, chapter 10, which goes through the analysis of cartelism, of trade unionism, and it really does a great in-depth study of it. So I would suggest you go over there. You can get the Kindle edition of that textbook for rather cheap. So I would suggest you check it out. And I hope that you're going to enjoy this conversation and take something from it. While it might be a little technical at times, we hope you would stick with it and hopefully you can learn from it. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Dr. Sean Rittenauer, Mises Fellow and professor at Grove City College. Dr. Rittenauer, pleasure to talk to you again on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's uh, always a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, it's it's great to talk to you. The last time we talked was before all this crazy COVID, uh, COVID-ness. And um, I, I just want to start by asking, how are you and your family doing? How are things where you are? Um, you know, how did you make it through this crazy year and a half or so? Well, it's, it, well, things are going well here, um, uh, in Western Pennsylvania. Um, the, uh, we're basically back to normal, um, uh, both, uh, in, uh, say commercial activity, uh, nobody's, nobody's, the mask restrictions are all gone. The, um, uh, capacity restrictions are basically, uh, gone. Um, our churches are back to full normal. And so that's a tremendous blessing. Um, we did, our family did get it in late November, uh, of last year and, uh, made it through. Um, and, uh, it did, you know, it, it, uh, it uh, packed a certain wallop, I must say, mm-hmm. and um, I do think it it it. This is all anecdotal, so I don't know, but it, it did seem to have an impact on our immune systems in general. So it seemed like we were a little more susceptible to 
other, uh, you know, some other typical maladies than we wouldn't have, didn't seem to be before, but I don't know. I mean, you never can tell. Every year is different, mm-hmm. so who knows. But but we, you know, made through okay. And uh, as I like to say, we uh, we got inoculated the hard way. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, uh, fr- from the looks of it, natural uh, immunity is even more effective than the immunization. So that's that's really good to see. And I'm glad that you and your family made it through it. Thank you. Because it does hit people uh, so differently, right? Um, Absolutely. So it's, it's good to hear that. I'm glad things are kind of back to back to normal for you. But that's partly kind of why I wanted to have you on the program because here in Manitoba, we are still not back to normal in Canada. We are yeah. still under, as we're talking, um, strict lockdown measures. Uh, gathering sizes are uh, zero. You can't have people over to your private properties. Um, it, it, Alberta, just two provinces over, a pastor friend of uh, of of mine, Tim Stevens, has been thrown into jail for holding outdoor yeah. services. Um, he's one of a few now um, pastors in our in our country who have been thrown in jail for gathering. So things are still kind of crazy yeah. here. But even amidst the lockdowns, um, which are primarily done to protect our failing socialized healthcare system, um, it. it even in the midst of that, uh, Dr. Rittenauer, we have nurses who are deciding they voted 98% to go on strike during this lockdown. So we're all locked down. We're not supposed to gather, go to church in the way that God's commanded. We can't have people over to dinner legally. All this stuff's going on. And yet, this union of public sector nurses has decided to go on strike. So I thought, hey, maybe this is the perfect time to talk about um, the what unions are, to talk about unionism, yeah. because it's something that we see in our society. Manitoba in Canada has always been a strong union province. Um, so I thought, hey, these are always issues that are coming up in, in, in debates over public policy, politics, and how are Christians to think about unions? So we had you on, you helped so helpfully explain what economics was from a Christian uh, biblical standpoint. We talked about socialism as well with you, and it really helped our listeners understand some of these concepts. So if you could, let's begin at the beginning with what are unions and what are they designed to do? Yeah, very good. So um, a union is a simply a uh, an organization where uh, workers, instead of negotiating with their employer individually, as each individual worker talks to their employer uh, directly to establish, okay, what's a mutually agreed to wage or working conditions, etc. The uh, workers uh, decide to uh, band together and uh, what they call collectively bargain. So the um, workers agree that they're not going to bargain independently, individually, but they're going to have a representative that's bargaining on their behalf and negotiating on their behalf. And with the understanding that the entire group of workers will uh, will affirm the negotiations or at least will have to ratify the 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 um, the approved uh, agreement and uh, in so doing uh, it uh, the the goal is to um, uh, shall we say maintain uh, more negotiating power than you would otherwise. That if the work, if if the employer, the entrepreneur knows that if if I don't meet the demands, uh, I'm not going to lose one worker, but you know, half my workforce or all my workforce could walk off the job. And of course, I have to have the workers to, I have to have laborers to uh, produce my products to meet my obligations. Uh, so that gives. Uh, the the union uh, maybe a little more uh, bargaining clout. That is um, and in, and and you know that's the standard uh, you know modus operandi for for what unions were uh, what they were designed for. You know they were perceived um, perceived um, 
So we see power inequalities. If you want to get all, uh, you know, all uh, uh, deconstructionist, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we want to put Foucault in there, which I don't, I don't care for. But anyway, there were perceived these perceived inequalities in like the 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 work the, the the company had all this power uh, over the worker. And the workers then felt uh, that, well, they had to take low wages and accept really bad working conditions, sometimes dangerous working conditions. So if we band together, we can we can do better for ourselves. And that's basically uh, the idea what what unions do. And then the goal is to uh, increase compensation for the uh, for the union members that um, uh you know, through the negotiation, either negotiate higher wages than they would get otherwise, or better benefits, better health care, better vacation, better, you know, safer working conditions, more breaks, uh, longer lunch periods, or whatever, whatever we're talking about. And so that's kind of what unions are, are designed to do. Excellent, excellent. And that's sort of their economic force. <laughs> yeah, so, so how does the union then operate, as you say, the, the function is to increase uh, benefits and, and wage compensation. So economically speaking, what is the strategy that unions use to actually increase those benefits? Uh, I'm talking, you, you mentioned in your book that unions use restriction yes. to increase these benefits. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, a lot of people, it's not uncommon for people to look at a labor union as sort of a, a countervailing monopoly force. Uh, they, they, you know, there's this idea that the corporation or the business or whoever it is, is this big, powerful firm that has monopoly power, can control things. And so we need a countervailing force. That was sort of John Kenneth Galbraith's argument for, for, for uh, you know, unionism. Of course, he thought things may have gone a little bit too far, that unions had more power, so we had to allow for um, uh, corporations to have a certain amount of power, too. Uh, but in, in, in reality, they're not monopolies at all. Monopolies mm. are uh, firms that will maintain, uh, you try to improve their profit by, by reducing the output that they produce. Um, and, and thereby, uh, you know, uh, allowing prices to be uh, higher uh, to the extent that they do that. Um, uh, unions actually do not restrict the, the, their goal is not to restrict the labor output of their members, but is to restrict the output of other people that are not their members. And so it's better to see unionism as restrictionist activity, uh, the, the union wage to the extent that it's above the non-union market wage is a restrictionist wage because they're able to, uh, get this. Uh, wage only for their union members and not for those who choose not to be members of the union. So the way that unions do this is they uh, their biggest um, their biggest uh, hammer, if you will, is the strike. Right? Is just the uh, union members walking off the job. They call a strike. They walk off the job. Uh, the firms don't have then uh, labor to do what they need to do. And so it kind of puts them over a barrel to a certain extent. Um, uh, often, of course, you know, that, that this involves uh, picketing. So there's demonstrations, uh, you know, demonstrating uh, claims that the, uh, the firm is, you know, unfair. Um, uh, they, they put, you know, when, in order for unionism really to be successful, uh, there needs to be not just uh, workers that are committed to it, but there needs to be sort of an over, a, a critical mass of people in society that um, that, that that see uh, sort of uh, the picket line as something sacred. You, you used to uh, you don't hear it so much in the United States anymore, but uh, there was a time, and I remember this uh, when I was younger um, in the '70s, uh, even early '80s. Where the the notion of the picket the picket line was sacred that if that if workers went on strike, um, you were considered very very bad to to cross the picket line to accept work uh, that is being offered to them because the regular workers are out on strike. Um, 
that's I mean, people people, uh, you know, if, if you did this, you're called a scab, uh, you know, which is not a nice thing to be called. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, it was sort of a, a social pariah in a, in a certain in a certain sense, um, where of course all they're doing is accepting accepting an offer to work mm-hmm. uh, at a at a wage that they're willing to work for. Um, oftentimes, it's descended into uh, violence. I mean that the the, the union members uh, would uh, perpetuate violence against those people who dared to cross the picket line and, and go to work. Um, I, I wrote, uh, I had an op-ed many years ago, uh, published and, uh, in the wall street journal talking partly about a strike, uh, for a, uh, private nonprofit, um, theater company in, uh, Seattle, Washington, I think it was. And, um, the musicians went out on strike and they hired the, the, the company had already sold tickets. And so they needed the show to go forward. They hired 15 replacement musicians. And then the local musicians union got the Teamsters involved. And uh, they called up the, the, the theater. They wanted to know the names and addresses of the replacement workers. Uh, I suspect not to give them a, a birthday card. Uh, and uh, And... Um, they said that the theater said, well, no way. And, um, uh, it was, I think a week after that, they, the theater started getting bomb threats. And so, uh, threats of violence often accompany, um, uh, strikes when they get really bitter. And when there are, uh, other workers who are not members of the union who are willing to work, uh, and, 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 and as a replacement worker, um, now also, in most um, uh, developed countries, the unions have tremendous legal privileges. Uh, it's not it's not an even playing field in that sense. The, the 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 for instance, the labor law in the United States, in order for a union to be the representative of a particular class of workers, you don't have to have every worker sign on. And workers in many places aren't able to sort of pick and choose. Do they want to be represented by the union or not? They don't have to be a member of the union in most in most cases. But if uh, there's a certain class of workers in a firm and only a simple majority vote to be represented by the union, then all workers in that class by law have to be represented by the union. And so uh, that, you know, that that puts a tremendous legal privilege, uh, gives a tremendous legal privilege to unions, uh, at least in the United States. Um, and so that also makes it then easier for unions to accomplish what they want to um, by the strike threat. Uh, I should also say, too, there's also um, uh, the, 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 the strategy called the slowdown, that if, if uh you know, if the the labor union the, the 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 union doesn't want to go out on strike because, of course, if you go out on strike, their workers are not getting paid during the strike. They may have some you know strike compensation funds that are collected over you know out of union dues over a number of years, but it's not usually not close to what the workers are making. Uh, in the short term, uh, they're going to have some deprivation, and so uh, to avoid that, sometimes what happens is just called a slowdown. That um, Workers still stay on the job. They don't walk off, but they do everything more. They do everything slowly. They gum up the works, and so that's another tactic that could be used um, in terms of uh, for uh, to, for the labor unions to get what they want. Um, often, labor unions are also in favor of minimum wage laws mm-hmm. because if you raise the minimum wage you are uh, effectively reducing competition from lower wage workers because you make it illegal for workers to work at a, at a, you know, a wage below whatever the minimum wage is. And so uh, that's why often um, uh, labor unions tend to be in, will be in favor of raising minimum wage, even if very few of their workers are actually making the minimum wage. But it's a way to sort of forestall lower wage competition it makes it a little bit more easier for them than to achieve achieve their goals, achieve their ends. So those are the things that they that they 
that they try to do. Now, what's, what's kind of interesting about this is that, um, you know, a lot of people will, will sort of contrast, say, the union wage with the free market wage. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing, there's nothing inherently contrary to the ethics of private property or contrary to uh, free market even for a labor union, right? That if, if, uh, if uh, unions are voluntary organizations, that if, you know, there's a set of workers that decide to come together and say, look, we're going to we're going to we're going to try to collectively bargain. And as long as they don't violate anybody else's right to life and property, they don't threaten people, force them to join. You know, they, there's none of this violence uh, associated with the picket line. As long as they do that, the, it seems to me that uh, they're free to organize just as um, an entrepreneur is free to start a business. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing. There's nothing inherently uh, wrong or, or unethical, as I see it, uh, with the labor union per se. Um, what has happened is, however, uh, the the labor laws have been crafted to give them certain legal privilege. For instance, um, as I already mentioned, the 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 the, the fact of uh, it only takes a majority of workers, simple majority, and then everybody has to be represented. You also have uh, Positions, at least in again, in, I'm most familiar with uh, labor law in the United States. That if, as long as a worker is striking for something besides a higher wage, so like healthcare benefits or uh, vacation time or working conditions, as long as they're striking for that, um, at least partly, there you can never permanently replace them by law. Right. So you couldn't if 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 you have 50 people in this union and they go out on strike, you can't just say, OK, you're all fired we're forever and we're going to get 50 replacement workers. Um, that's illegal. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that also puts the uh, entrepreneur sort of over a barrel, if you will, because and that's also why uh, labor unions never strike only for higher wages. Right. They always have one of these other fringe benefits in their demands to sort of cover themselves. And so uh, you you can hire temporary replacement workers. The firm can hire workers to work to keep going if the workers are willing to cross the picket line. But once the strike is settled, all those replacement workers have to be let go, or at least if they're retained, they're retained on top of all of the workers that went out on strike. And so uh, those are the kind of things that um, that I think are are. Uh, more uh, ethically murky because then you're giving um, you know, you're giving special privilege to certain citizens and it's being shall we say enforced by ultimately by uh, by the force of the state and so the the you know the entity with the biggest guns then gets to determine who gets to work and who doesn't. Yeah, which obviously violates, you know, uh, <laughs> liberty and 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 property and and the right for you to use your labor as you see fit. And that kind of brings up something that's really interesting. This kind of interesting um, paradox, right? Because as you've made mention, generally unions were seen um, as essential in counteracting the monopoly uh, power of big business. Um, that, and it's kind of built on this Marxist idea that the laborer is against the, the manager, the producer. Um, but you point out very, um, very eloquently in your book, uh, Foundations of Economics, A Christian View, how that's not the case. It was built on a bad understanding of economics because as we see when it comes to strikes uh the issue is outside labor forces not the managers right that's why people are beat up called scabs um called all sorts of names for trying to work because it's actually laborers who compete with laborers in the market and not with managers or producers, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and the the kind of faulty notion that unionism is really built on in in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. The you know, what, what unionism does really in, in many respects, and especially like you said, especially the strike, you really get to see um, 
a sort of common myth laid to bear. You really get to see how uh, in the marketplace, the relationship between uh, the owner and the worker, the entrepreneur and the worker is fundamentally cooperative. Mm -hmm. It's not fundamentally competitive. It's not that the worker, it's not that the owner is competing against the worker to gain wealth. It is that the uh, entrepreneur and the worker together must work together to create wealth for both of them, right? That's that's the that's the fundamental relationship of of uh, the firm and uh, and the worker, well, you know, management and labor, if you want to call it that. Um, what you see then is, in terms of competition, you're exactly right. Uh, a, a, a seller of a product or a, or a store, a retailer, uh, is not competing against its labor. It's competing against other producers, other sellers. Right? And likewise, the workers, uh, in terms of gaining their compensation and, and doing the best that they can for themselves and their family, they are not competing against companies. They're competing against other workers. And so that's, that's why... It's important to understand that these union wages and these union compensation are restrictionist. Uh, the union can successfully uh, convince an employer to pay a higher wage uh, than they would otherwise would if it was not a union situation, and that's all fine and good. Um, what that means is then that you do have, shall we say, it, it functions sort of like a minimum wage. If you have a labor contract, that, that's negotiated by the union that, say, is above a certain compensation level, uh, that would be the case without a union, um, those people, those members of the union that remain employed will get a higher level of compensation. And, and so they benefit, of course. Um, now, it's, it's, it should be important to, to, to understand that whenever you raise the amount, of the price of compensation, you raise wages or salary, or the cost of benefits, that's going to reduce the number of workers that a that a that an owner, an entrepreneur, can uh, profitably employ. Right. So you know, it's like you you raise the price of gasoline, you can buy less gasoline. You raise the price of apples, you can buy fewer apples. You raise the price of labor, either in terms of salary or compensation benefits then uh, the, the entrepreneur can't afford to hire as many, right? And so uh, there'll be fewer people hired. The people that are hired in a union will receive more compensation, but they do so at the expense of the workers that are either non-unionized or the union members that, that, that are given the pink slip, that are, that are let go. Um, now, what's interesting is uh, because there are fewer workers hired in unionized industries when the unions are successful in increasing compensation for the members, well, where do these people go? Well, they must go to other places, other other non-unionized industries that are paying a lesser wage, and the supply of labor then increases in those areas, and so it actually works to, to, to decrease wages and salaries in those other non-unionized industries. And so, once again, you have a clear case where uh, the unions don't benefit labor in general. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's common, you know, there's a common uh, sort of understanding, a common conventional wisdom that would say, uh, you know, the, the, the union is for the working man. Right? Well, the union is not for the working man in general. The, the union is for some working men and women, right? Some for some laborers, mm-hmm. but when they get what they want for their members, they do it at the expense of other workers. So it, it sort of help, it drives a wedge between the interests of the unionized workers and the non-unionized workers, and uh, that's and then of, and of course uh, as that bifurcation occurs, where you have. The, the, the union, and especially, again, when it's backed up by government privilege, you have these distortionary effects where because of the, the, the union being able to leverage their government privilege into higher wages and, and then lower, lower employment for their members, then uh, it, it distorts the sort of natural, organic uh, market division of labor. And workers are 
some workers, not all, but some workers are directed to other places where they are relatively less efficient, less productive in employment. And in fact, because of that, society as a whole will uh, be less productive and it'll be re- you know, relatively impoverished. They, will, they, they won't achieve as much prosperity as they, as they would if there were no distortions in the market division of labor. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that's an extraordinarily important point to make up. As you make mention, not only is unionism kind of built on a faulty understanding of competition within the marketplace, but the idea that unions are are for the people, for the laborers in general, is is fault of like uh, fundamentally misses the point that you're talking about, where this restrictionist kind of restricting the la- the amount of workers in this certain uh, uh, unionized sector then floods the, the the private marker or other market labor forces with with other workers then bringing down the the price of labor and the it's really important to understand that this idea that unionism equals prosperity for the worker as you've just laid out it's it's not necessarily true it actually brings down pr- productivity in society bring down uh, wages in non-unionized sectors and we can see it very clearly in manitoba we've been a huge proponent of unions uh, across canada saskatchewan and manitoba have been some of the biggest uh, proponents of unions, and yet we've consistently throughout history been a have-not province, right? It's not these unionized entities that are bringing prosperity to our provinces, but you look at Alberta and their private oil sectors and, and how much prosperity that they have just with that production in private industry, you really see that this whole talk of unionism doesn't actually lead to the prosperity of the entire market. And it, in, as you've made mention, it misallocates resources and labor and really important things for the functioning economy. So now I just want to talk to you. So we've been kind of talking about unionism broadly, and you've kind of touched on some of the, the fallacies behind unionism. It doesn't really produce what it says it's going to produce built on faulty premises, but you've said inherently it's not against free market uh, division of labor and kind of the ethics that go into that. But what happens if we were to trans uh, transport unionism in general to the public sector? Because it's really striking to me, Dr. Rittenauer, to see that the progressive of all progressives, the guy who gave you guys the the New Deal, Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself was totally against public sector unions. He was for private sector unions. He was the one who helped give those special privileges, as you've made mention, to unions. But he says that we have to understand that uh, old government employees should realize that the process of collective bargaining, as usually understood, cannot be transplanted into the public service. It has its distinct and insurmountable limitations when applied to public personnel management. The very nature and purpose of government make it impossible for administrative officials to represent fully or to bind the employer in mutual discussions with government employee organizations. The employer is the whole people who speak by means of laws enacted by their representatives in Congress. Accordingly, administrative officials and employees alike are governed and guided and in many instances restricted by laws which establish policies, procedures, or rules in personnel matters. So even FDR is against public sector union, but the occasion of why we're talking is because we have a public public, um, sector union in the Manitoba Nurses Union, who is a part of our socialized healthcare system, who's going on strike to get these benefits. So if there's ethical problems with private sector unionism in certain circumstances, how unethical is public sector unions? And maybe you can break that down for us. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and you got a whole whole bunch of stuff going on there, right? In terms of potential, you know, 
the, the ideology behind it, the interests behind it. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that Roosevelt was sort of bringing out in that in that quotation, on the one hand, is the the, the, the fundamental difference in, uh, shall we say, organizational management between a, a, a private sector firm that is governed according to the <clears throat> profit and loss calculations and uh, the bureaucratic management of government entities. Uh, I mean, by definition, the government has certain ends that uh, they're trying to achieve that, uh, for whatever reason, it's been determined, I mean, rightly or wrongly, uh, that the, the, it cannot be handled by a uh, private enterprise. And so we have to have the government to do this. And, but because we have to have the government to do this, it's not going to be governed by profit and loss. Decision making is about how resources can be allocated, about what we're going to do and not do. is not determined by profit and loss considerations. It's determined by policy uh, decisions, just mm-hmm. like what he was talking about. And so if that's the case, you know, I could understand why if one wanted to accept completely pure motives, but understand why someone would say, look, we have a categorically different, different uh, uh, organizational setting, uh, a completely different type of enterprise. And so uh, in, in the government, you can't just have people continue to, to, to ratcheting up wages because you're working for the people and, you know, the people are you. And so, you know, there's a, um, I, I used to, when, 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 when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed uh, back in the late 80s, um, there were a couple of websites that were marketing uh, a bunch of old uh, Soviet propaganda posters uh, and, that, and that you could find. And, and you could, I don't have any, but there are a couple uh, of them that uh, I saw that had a couple of captions and the artwork was sort of interesting. And so I uh, captured their photos. And one of them had, it looked like a, a, a bee. It was a bee sort of working at creating uh, like the honeycomb the, the, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the beehive. And the caption was, uh, work as if you're working for yourself. That was the motivation. <laughs> you know, we want you to work, but work as if you're working for yourself. Of course, you're not working for yourself, but just as if you're working for yourself. And uh, in a way, that's sort of what, um, what, what what Roosevelt is saying. There's a look, when you're working for the public sector, the public sector is all of us. And so, you know, in some in some sense, the idea, if you're, if you're forming a union and trying to strike for higher compensation, you're actually going against your own interests because your interest is the government's, right? So it's sort of, sort of this collectivist, uh, you know, we're all in this together kind of, uh, I mean, literally, uh, whether you like it or not, and kind of mentality. On the other hand, what complicates the whole thing is that uh, even though uh, you, you know the organization may be government uh, owned and and ran, the government has to participate in a market economy, right? And so uh, you know, as long as we're not full blown uh, like Soviet style communist socialist. You still have a tremendous amount of um, uh, private ownership and a tremendous amount of free enterprise, and so the the government, in order to in order to hire employees, including you know including nurses in this case, in order to hire nurses, you have to pay them a wage that they're willing to 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 uh, accept. You can't just force nurses to go to work for you. That would be a, poli- a complete police state. And so you have to, you have to, they have to voluntarily choose, right? And so as long as the government, even if they, even if they fully own a, a particular sector of the economy, let's mm-hmm. say that it's just supposed to say every hospital would be completely owned by the state, mm-hmm. which they it still is would in, have which, to. Which just, just for your knowledge, that is, yeah. that is the yeah. case in Manitoba. We only have public okay. health right. uh setting so okay. so all the nur- there is no private yes. nurses in in that sense if they're actually working right. for yeah. hospitals right because they're all yeah, gotcha. state-owned and state-run so just just okay. for your context gotcha. all right yeah 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 okay very good yeah i was wondering about that so very good yeah. so so in a situation like that 
Um, yeah, if, if, if they want if they want to be a nurse in the hospital, they have to work for the state. Mm-hmm. Of course, they don't have to be a nurse, right? They could choose to do something else if they wanted to. And at the very least, they have to. They still have to. They have to be willing to accept the wage that 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 the that the that's being offered by the government. And mm-hmm. so um, that that's that that makes it a little more uh, you know in some sense a little more dicey. Um, but if if it seems to me you can't, it seems to be fundamentally sort of inconsistent. On the one hand, if you're going to accept that. Uh, you know, all you know, all medical medical care should be provided by the government. Mm-hmm. Then you have to be. If you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. If you're going to accept that, then you also need to accept that the government has to be able to set the wages, set the salaries. Mm-hmm. Because if, if 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 they don't, you're just you really are continuing living off of everybody else. Because if you're if if, if you say that look, uh, the government has to pay me more than the economic value of my contribution you're saying that somebody else in the in, in the province or in the country who's paying their taxes to fund myself they i have to i deserve to live off of them mm-hmm. because somehow my contribution is so great and so important yeah um, yeah no, and, and so and i think know, Sorry, I just wanted to interject because that fundamentally to me is the biggest issue with public sector unions in this idea. Like Roosevelt saying, well, well, in the public sector, you're actually arguing against other taxpayers for goodies and for benefits. Yeah. So your employer is those outside of your union. Um, so it's all the taxpayers that are not a part of the nursing union. So it's a set of people who are using government to lobby for their own best interests against the interests of the people uh, yes. generally, right? Just as you yes. said, you know, how labor unions don't actually help labor in general, they actually hurt labor in general. The same can be said in this uh, this setting as well. We know in Manitoba, I think the median wage for nurses, now there's quite a different uh, quite different levels of nurses, mind you, but about the medium wage is, is about $70,000. And because they're um, taking public money for that, we know that, as you point out in your book, they're tax consumers and not taxpayers. So they're already um, a burden on the tax system. And now on top of that, they're, during a pandemic, kind of, I would argue, cynically trying to use their position, trying to use the fact that so many people in our province don't like our current premier to then argue for a better contract and for better wages and for for more goodies. But again, so much of what they're using is they're overworked, there's not enough staff. And Dr. Rittenauer, can you talk about how, given the fundamental economic idea of unionisms restricting the amount of people working in the industry how are they in this sense then complaining about what unionism gives them to then argue for more goodies if that makes sense that's an excellent point absolutely that's really good because uh you know if 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 we're striking because we're overworked and understaffed and 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 therefore we deserve you know better compensation or what have you. Right? The only way to accomplish that is to raise costs for the government hospitals. And so um, if you know if, if there's if you know, I don't know what what things are like in the particular case, but if there's a hard budget constraint, meaning that it is not easy for this for, for these hospitals to get larger budgets. If that's the case, then there's going to be actually fewer people hired, there'll be fewer hours allotted to nursing, so the, the, it'll get, get even worse in terms mm-hmm. of that. It'll be even over, they'll be even worked even more, and um, it'll be even, in some sense, it'll be, uh, the stress levels will rise. You're, you're not going to get more nurses if you effectively lobby for higher compensation. If there's a hard budget constraint. Now, if there's a soft budget constraint, meaning that, okay, what probably would happen is if they're successful with the strike, um, 
then the hospitals agree to pay them more, to provide more compensation in various ways. Um, then that's going to require more resources, more financial resources from the, from the larger government budget, which means, again, that, that somebody else, some other, some other uh, either taxes are going to have to go up or uh, there's going to be more borrowing from the state. Uh, which uh, will, uh, again, take resources out of the hands of other productive people and put into uh, these uh, you know, government entities such as these, these hospitals. And uh, you're, you're going to have, again, a situation where, uh, in this case, the nurses are going to be partly living off of other people, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have this income redistribution. Uh, that that takes place, right? So so it does, you know. Le- public sector unions do, does raise this um, uh, issues of income redistribution, co- coercive income redistribution. Because if 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 they're if they're, uh, it seems to me the two main alternatives. If you if they're granted what they want in terms of uh, say higher compensation, uh, more time off, whatever, it becomes more costly. To operate the organization, and if if the government hospital can't obtain more funds, then there going to be fewer nurses employed, and they're going to be even more overworked, and their situation will be even even worse for the ones that remain employed. Mm-hmm. But they, they, the, those that remain employed will get certain will get a little bit more money, but they're going to be worked harder in that sense too, right? So I mean that that that's something to consider. But if the, the hospital is able to gather more resources. It's all done by the power of the state. And so it's, it's an effectively an, a government uh, mandated income redistribution scheme that people uh, that are productive and earn a certain amount of incomes are not going to be enjoying the fruit of their labor because it's going to be taken from them and provided to these successful public sector unions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the, the, we, we, people talk very, uh, they have a lot of heat when talking about money and politics, but we, we have to realize, too, in our case, that these unions have great lobbying powers and they, they force people within their sector to pay union fees or or at least maybe, depending on the union, um, give those fees to a, some sort of charity or something. But, you know, to be a part of that union, most people need to pay fees to have the collective bargaining yeah. done. They take that money, then um commit it to lobby lobbying exercises whether it's uh propaganda pieces on commercials or television or just lobbying specifically politicians who then um get the union support so then they can get hired and then they're the unions are basically uh trying to put people into power that are favorable to unionism so then they can get the most goodies and the kickback against those who are are actually taxpayers in the system the productive members of our society like farmers especially in manitoba we're in in the prairies they're they're having the fruit of their labor as you said taken to go to ends that are fundamentally against what they're doing and not for their benefit but here's the the really um frustrating part uh is every time the public health uh care workers go on strike they say it's for our benefit it's it's for better health health care it's for better patient care it's for you guys out there and i can't help but think that as christ said is the habit of the gentiles they make themselves your benefactors to then lord it over you and that's where as Christians, I think, can we, Dr. Rittenauer, be a party to that sort of system that's working um, against the benefit of our neighbors in this, as you said, government redistribution uh, scheme? How should Christians consider participating in these kind of public sector unions in this way? Oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's a good question too. I, I think that I, uh, on the one hand, I wouldn't want to burden any 
particular person's conscience. But I think every, you need to go into these things with eyes wide open. And, and, mm-hmm. and so often with, with the ideology and the propaganda, it's that people's eyes aren't wide open because the, um, as you said, you know, the, the power of the lobbyists, the power of the media, uh, when you have the lobbyists, the media, the, 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 the union lobbyists and the media, if they're uh, ideologically in agreement, then you have a pretty potent force for, um, uh, you know, uh, keeping the public uh, fairly ignorant as to the actual economics of the case and, and the and the ethics of the case. So, um, but but yeah, I mean, I know I, I would counsel against it. I would I would if 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 it's if it's at all possible not to be party to it. I mean, I don't know what the I don't know what the what the requirements are if if, mm-hmm. if nurses have to be members of the union or not, mm-hmm. but. I would I would counsel against it. I when I uh, I actually uh, worked for two years for the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics right out of college, mm-hmm. um, and then I then I went straight. But uh, <laughs> but before that, I was working for, uh, I was working for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and um, uh, I had a, a guy approach me uh, asking me to join. They had a they had a, uh, a government workers union, and uh, I said, well, what do they do? And he talked a little bit about what they do. He said, but, but by law, and I knew this was the case because when, when, you, when you sign on, you have to sign a document saying you will, never, you will not strike against the United States government. And so I knew that, that they couldn't strike. And I, I thought, well, look, if you can't strike, then what's the point of the union, really? I mean, if you know that you don't have, you don't have that, that uh, strategy or that tactic as as the sort of the backdrop ultimate threat to collectively bargain what are you talking about what are you really doing and you know they they it turns out that you know there's there's sort of informal lobbying and 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 informal demonstrations that, that they were able to get in i remember once they they were demonstrating against uh, uh president bush the first's uh budget uh i was at 1990 or 91 budget uh, because they thought it was, um, you know, uh, it, it didn't do enough to boost, uh, you know, government employee benefits or whatever. And I just thought the whole thing was, like, well, this is ridiculous. There's no, there's no reason. And I knew I was not going to be a, a career uh, bureaucrat. I knew mm-hmm. I, I took the job uh, uh, to to get some experience, but I knew going in that I did not want to be a government employee in my whole life. And, uh, I very much was happy to leave after two years, but, um, it, it I thought, well, this just, it, it makes no, it, it makes no sense. Um, and, and I, 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 I didn't, I felt a little bit, uh, a little bit oily even working for, uh, working for the BLS, uh, and then it, to join the union would have been, I was like, that completely going to the dark side. If you will. <laughs> so, um, so I, I, I was not comfortable with it personally at all. Um, when, uh, you know, my, my, my wife and I, when she was working as a, uh, as a teacher in Alabama, she was approached by somebody, uh, to join the teachers union in Alabama. And, um, they said, "Look, if it, well, and she says, "Well, why?" Because, well, if 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 we don't have the teachers' union, you know, you're going to have these these very these basically these uh, crazed Christians that are going to be wanting to uh, destroy private, uh, public education." And gave her, you know, a, a list of a couple of, of of authors, and we looked at it and say, like, "Well, we kind of agree with these people, so I don't <laughs> think we want to be a part of this union." Yeah. And, you know, thankfully, I must say, in both cases, uh, the, um, uh, the the union people were were pretty um, were, were reasonable in the sense that there, there, you know, there was no threats. There was no um, it didn't seem to be held against us at all. which was very thankful. Yeah, but that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, but in any event, yeah, I mean, I just I think to me, the idea that um it's 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 hard because it you can just see how ideology plays out. But to me, the idea that I have this uh, position that's actually that's funded by the taxpayers, mm-hmm. and I am going to uh, lobby for even more money, 
through through a strike. I mean, through 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 unionization. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to me just again, this is an effort of 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 living more off of other people, which I find you know ethically problematic for a whole num- number of reasons. I mean. To the extent that you, I mean, I of course I would counsel against government healthcare completely. Yes, right? I would, just, <laughs> I would I, be I, with I, you on that. So, so I mean, that that would be. But given given what you have, right? Given what you have, mm-hmm. um, it seems to me that if if you're going to argue that I mean these these kind of decisions need to be handled. Uh, Outside of a crisis situation, right? And so, if if you know, it, it, to me, usually, like you know, they, they tell me you know, you know, crises make for bad policy decisions. Mm-hmm. And if uh, I, I could understand if you have a pandemic, and you, I can understand if it's everybody on board, and there's all kinds of new policies and procedures that you have to go to go through. And, and, and if there's an excess number of patients or some coming to the hospitals, I can understand feeling overrun, feeling understaffed, feeling at the end of your rope. I can understand all that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and in some sense, it's precisely because of that. It's not a great it's not a, a, a great atmosphere for. Uh, wisely choosing policy that's going to be good for the long term, I mm-hmm. guess. Is the way yeah, it's 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 think. reactionary. No, I think that's I think that's a great great point to make. And as we've I hope helped people understand, it's quite often the union policies that have actually led to the restriction of the amount of nurses who are in the hospitals doing that work. So therefore, we actually have supply issues. And that's always the case in Manitoba. The By far and away, every budget, the vast majority of the budget goes to healthcare. Yet in Canada, yeah. in Manitoba, we just do not have access to healthcare in the way that you guys do when we're talking about MRIs. We're looking at six to nine months down the road. When we're talking about surgeries, especially with all the the um, shutdowns of, of just normal surgeries in, Manit- in Manitoba because of the pandemic, it's years out for people. Um, so we're, we're, we're talking about the fact that fundamentally the answer isn't more unionism. The answer is freeing up the market system to work properly. And that will give more of a supply of healthcare workers and better conditions for people who are going into the healthcare system. Cause the one thing that stood out to me, uh, Dr. Rittenauer, you guys got way more COVID in the States than we ever have in Canada. Like in Manitoba, just for your knowledge, we're just over a thousand deaths throughout, you know, 16 months. Right. So it's virtually minuscule, right? You guys, you guys have had, way crazier numbers granted your population yeah. is is way way bigger yeah. but still your healthcare systems have been able to maintain the amount of of people who need their care and in Manitoba we've had to literally ship people to different ICUs across the country because when we we, we have about 100 ICU beds as an entire province yeah. um so again the problem is, like you said, the ideology is so deep within our culture, it's hard to distinguish and kind of come up with what's the proper actions. But I think I hopefully we kind of laid some foundation for people to understand, well, the the solution isn't more unionism. No, it, it, the fact that we've been in lockdowns isn't indicative of the, the deadliness of COVID-19, but rather indicative of the failure of our socialized medicine system, which has never been put under this amount of stress. Because, you know, even in 1918, when we're talking about the Spanish flu, we didn't have socialized medicine. This is the first real test of our healthcare system in Canada this way. And it's led to crazy, the, some of the craziest lockdowns in the world, yeah. because we just can't keep up with it because it's against fundamentally basic economics, you know, which I'm so thankful for you, Dr. Rittenauer, that you wrote the book 
on the fundamentals of economics from a Christian worldview that I've benefited from greatly. It's foundation, Foundations of Economics, a Christian view. Maybe in, in just closing up, you can tell people what you're up to, what you've been working on, uh, where people can find more of your stuff, and where they can get their hands on Foundations of Economics, a Christian worldview, or Christian view, pardon me. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I say in terms of what I'm working on now, um, I am uh, working. It's a multi-year project now. It turns out uh, a book on uh, economic progress, economic prosperity, and um, looking at sort of building off some themes actually that that, that began in my book Foundations of Econ, uh, talking about the different uh, processes or sources that contribute to prosperity, and then looking at uh, you know contra- and contrasting. That sort of more full-orbed uh, understanding of the importance of the division of labor, capital formation, technological advance, and the importance of entrepreneurship uh, coordinating all the activity. Um, and then contrasting that with modern growth theory, which tends to be very uh, mathematical and positivistic. And then looking in light of sound economic uh, and a sound economic understanding of the source of prosperity, looking to what institutions, what, what social institutions allow for these sources to flourish and hence allow for a human flourishing uh, in the material sense anyway. And mm-hmm. so that's a book I'm working on. Um, uh, I have, uh, well, I guess it'd be a, few, a couple years ago now, I uh, edited was called The Mises Reader. Um, I'm a senior fellow with the Ludwig von Mises Institute. So um, you can see some of my work there. Um, I haven't published a uh, a short article there in 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 quite a while, so I've been kind of pouring into pouring into the book uh, most of my work like that. But um, uh, in any event, that's that's kind of where I am, what I'm doing. Um, I'm also a, a contributor to the Institute for uh, Faith and Freedom here at Grove City College, and so you can find some of my work here. But again, I haven't I haven't contributed to 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 them for for a while it's it's been a while most of my time has been geared towards trying to get this book finished mm-hmm. yeah and you're still teaching and, at grove city yes yeah yeah okay. absolutely yeah and uh, i was going to say that the covid really took the, the covid restrictions and having to redo things and it, it just added layers on 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 red tape and that kind of thing uh, that significantly slowed down a lot of scholarly output for everybody, I think. So it made it yeah. much, much more difficult to be productive in that, in that regard. Yeah. Well, that's great. I, I'm glad, glad that you're hard at work. It sounds like a super interesting project, uh, you know, because that's the fundamental principle, right? Like, uh, of, of economics, that's like scarcity and it, it is, is yes. a reality, right? Uh, so we don't have to explain yes, yes. poverty, right? We actually have to, have to right. explain that's- prosperity. So I'm glad you're doing that book. And- yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited to maybe get my hands on it and, and see it. So thank you so much. I, I appreciate it, uh, given the fact that you're so busy doing a bunch of stuff uh, that you gave us an hour out of your time. And I just wish the Lord's blessings on you and your family and uh, and your work there at Grove City and, and the project that you're, you're doing. Hopefully we can have you back on the program at some time to talk a little bit uh, more about different economic topics. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Rittenauer. God bless. Take care. Do you love listening to The Great Exchange? You can subscribe to our podcast on any one of these podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and have two engaging episodes delivered to your mobile device each week. Our midweek message covers a myriad of topics and teaches us to look at them all through gospel glasses. And our Scripture Saturday episode is just that, an opportunity to study the Bible one passage of Scripture at a time. Miss an episode? Visit our website, thegreatexchange.ca, and you'll find the complete back catalog of our episodes. And don't be shy. We love to hear from you, our listeners. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or if you're not social media savvy, send us an email to thegreatexchangepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for joining in our ministry as we help you look at the world through gospel glasses.
Well, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed that podcast. It's definitely, as I said, technical, but I think it's super, super important for us to understand some of these contexts so we can rightfully address these situations, have an informed view on what's going around in our culture, in our society, and think Christianly about even things like economics and unionism. So we hope you enjoy the podcast. Be sure to check out our entire back catalog, greatexchange.ca. We're uploading more and more old episodes as we go. You can also check out some of the merch that we have over there, as well as join up for a newsletter as well. So go over to greatexchange.ca, check out all things Great Exchange, and we wish you the best. God bless you all. And as we say at the end of every podcast, it is finished. <laughs>